This podcast is brought to you by United Bank, the community bank of the nation's capital. This is Let's Have a Drink, a podcast from BizNow Media, where we grab a drink with the people who are shaping real estate in and around Washington, D.C. I'm Ethan Rothstein, BizNow's East Coast editor. Today, we're getting coffee at a bake joint in Mount Vernon Triangle with Savile Senior Managing Director Wendy Feldman Block. Wendy, thank you so much for, for having a drink with me. Uh, cheers. 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 Thank you for meeting me. Absolutely. Wendy has been one of the top brokers at Savile's representing nonprofits and law firms in the D.C. area around the country. But she was born in Herndon and grew up in Reston not long after the town was founded by Bob Simon in the 60s. You know, it's a very different experience than how I raised my own kids. Um, you, there were bike paths everywhere. You could walk to some of the few village shopping centers that all predated the town center. But it was kind of a really nice place to grow up. Your parents didn't worry about where you were as long as you were home by dinner. No cell phones, none of that. And there was a lot of freedom. Um, we lived in the, in the woods, and it was really nice. And your, your father was a real estate attorney, correct? Actually, my father is still a is real still, estate attorney. Still, He's 80 years old. He started a firm in Fairfax um, with a cousin of his and a good friend called Odin Feldman and Pittleman. Mm-hmm. And they started in the um, late 1960s, and the firm has grown. And I think today it's the largest independent firm in Northern Virginia. Oh, wow. And I thought, actually, that I would become a real estate lawyer like him. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of my path diverged and I, I never pursued that because I got a great opportunity at Savills mm-hmm. back then which was Julian J. Studley right out of college. Do you remember your first exposure to the industry? Do you remember anything growing up about Actually, that? I do. When I was a kid, my, my father grew up in um, D.C. My mom's from Manhattan. I joke that any sophistication I have is because of my mother. And um, we would drive around neighborhoods. All my dad really ultimately wanted to do was to get back to living in D.C., but to live in an area where he, he never could have afforded to do. He put himself through college and law school by moving furniture um, that my grandmother had at her furniture store in Herndon. And um, we would drive around neighborhoods. He, they loved the Wesley Heights area. And then we would also talk a lot about deals that my dad was working on. We would drive out um, to Reston from D.C. and my dad would say, one day they're going to have a road parallel to the toll road and, and this will all be office buildings. He had a lot of vision back then and he would be involved with deals and he would talk about them. He worked all the time building his practice. And so I just always thought that's what I would want to do. I would want to be a lawyer. And then I thought, well, I graduated college. I studied in um, Italy um, art history as a minor, economics as a major, and I thought, I'm going to just do real estate for one year, very naively, and then I'll go to law school. But I got in at Studley. When I think about people that I've worked with, like Tom Fulcher and Bill Quinby and David Lipson, these are people who've been there as long as me. And you know, there's just a lot of trust and respect. And I think that's part of it, and that, that's, those are some of the things that are, are really important to me. Wendy started in the late 1980s as the commercial real estate industry was suffering through the savings and loan crisis. Representing tenants at that time meant being on the other side of the table from desperate landlords. You know, I think one of the things is is understanding that our markets are cyclical. We're going to have, you know, periods where it's going to be more favorable for the tenant and more, or more favorable for the landlord. But always remembering that in general it can swing both ways. You want to get the best transaction for your client. And so, but you also don't want to push it so far that the owner can't perform. And, and we saw that happen with some transactions that we did. So it really also 
instilled in us about always doing so much research and due diligence on who you're going to be doing the deals with right. so that you understand. Because if we push so hard and we get a deal that's so tight and the owner can't do it or can't manage to that level, nobody's going to be happy. And, and to use an overall statement, it's going to be a lose-lose mm -hmm. situation. How has, I mean, you've been on the leasing, the tenant leasing side for your, your entire career. How has that job changed? So, you know, I talked about when I started, we didn't have CoStar. We didn't really have computers. Right. We didn't have cell phones. You know, you would, and it was a big game changer when CoStar came out because all of a sudden you had all this information. You still have to take some of it with a grain of salt. It's only as good as, as what people like myself update listings and, and things of that sort. But um, it, it, it leveled that playing field. I was part of Studley's National Accounts Group um, and I traveled all over the country working on, on large complex projects with an amazing team. But I would do a lot of our advance work. And so you said, you know, how have things changed? I would have to fly somewhere. We'd gotten a call for an opportunity, for example, with Bristol Myers Squibb up in Princeton. They wanted to build a 600,000 foot campus. So I would be dispatched and I would go and I would be in Princeton for like a week and I would meet with economic development. I would meet with developers. I would survey the land, get maps and really learn the lingo and then come back, go to the meeting, hopefully get hired, which we did on that one. And then and then kind of keep going that way. And then all of a sudden when all the, the, the growth of the internet and information like CoStar, I didn't have to do as much traveling, which actually kind of worked out nicely with my personal life. I'm an information junkie. Yeah. And so even though if I don't do my own research, I do have such strong roots in that. And I'm always thinking about that. And, and how does that play out in the market? And what's the story? Because we're at such an interesting time in the marketplace. And this run now since 2009 is one of the longest we've seen in a long time. And we had our head of, um, uh, our, we have an economist in New York, and she came down and talked this week about like, what things she's looking at to see indicators of is the market starting to turn and it doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to turn a lot but there may be some corrections and this is sort of the new new and that's kind of how I look at things since 2008 it is still really heavily a tenant market and I don't think that's going to change. Mm -hmm. um, you, you may see rents start to go up a little bit but they're completely offset because of concessions and we have in DC the highest concessions in terms of rent abatement and tenant approval allowance. Um, in the country, uh, you know, the last quarter, DC, DC proper set a set a record for vacancy, or I think it's like 13 13 percent. At the same time, there's still all this office construction going on. I mean, as a tenant broker, I mean, you have your pick really of you know all these all these new buildings. So I go, what what is the market like right now? If you're taking a, a client around the city, uh, you know, so what has your experience been just navigating this tenants market? Well. First of all, it is really nice that it is a tenant's market. Um, I think one of our biggest challenges is, within reason, depending on what segment, um, there are more options than we know what to do with. Mm -hmm. And so my job as, a, as an advisor to, on behalf of tenants is to help them navigate that. You know, if somebody says, I want to be in the East End and I want 10,000 feet of Class A space, there could be 40 options. Yeah. They don't want me to give them a report of 40 options. Their time is valuable, so I'm going to rely on my, on my experience and knowledge of the market to figure out which ones are going to hit their key metrics. Most people want to be um, on Metro or close to it. Um, we're in a huge amenities war. Uh, the amenitization of office buildings has been a, a major game changer in the last few years. Landlords have had to try to figure out what they can do to bring tenants to their building or keep tenants in. And it's the same exercise the tenants themselves are going at in figuring out what they need to do within their space 
as a recruitment and a retention tool. So both parties are, are really focused on that. But some of it's a little bit much, you know, some of the golf simulators. Although as a budding golfer, I think that's kind of cool. But you look it's good to at... Use, so you use it twice, but yeah. Right. Nice but, there's a, but there's that whole psychological thing. And we also talk about that in terms of the geography. Like people are like, oh my God, that's like, that's too far. It's like two blocks. But you have to recognize that and understand how people look at that. So um, buildings, for example, that are doing some really cool amenities are attracting tenants. We just finished a lease on behalf of CARE, and they're moving to a building that's got this great tenant lounge, and it's got probably like kombucha and nitro coffee on tap. They've got conference centers. They've got a great bike room. A lot of people bike. I'm a cyclist. You know, they, they, they want that. Um, a great rooftop. If you don't have those things in a fitness facility, you don't have to have them all, but like for example, to me a fitness facility is a non-starter. If you don't have it, that's a problem. And it's not just enough to have it in the building, it needs to get out of the basement. It needs to be on the window line, or have a high ceiling, or have glass, or all of the above. I have clients that won't even consider buildings that don't have that. And you've seen the impact on what it's done to the whole fitness world. Now how much do people use it? I don't know. So when you talk about being a tenant market, I don't see that going away anytime soon. So for example, just now, year to date, in DC proper, there's been over two million square feet that's delivered. There's another four and a half million square feet that's gonna deliver in the next three years. And when you look at the last nine years, where there was just under 14 million square feet delivered, only 6.7% of that has seen positive net absorption. Wow. So that's the problem. There's all these pockets of space, and, and more of the commodity space has struggled. New buildings do, for the most part, lease well, but they also have what we call the muffin top phenomena, yeah. which is such a, a funny term, but it's really true, because what happens is that the tops of the buildings lease um, to the detriment of the rest. Yeah. And that 66% that gets leased leaves great opportunities for me to come in on behalf of my clients that don't have to be on the top floor and negotiate great deals. Mm -hmm. Flexibility has become a huge amenity as well as that and that's what co-working and flex office provides. So uh, you know as a tenant broker how do you factor that kind of new class of, of factors in you know what kind of tenants fit for that model? So first of all I actually think it's a you know I mentioned you know like, if somebody said to me, Wendy, what, what are some of the, like, the really big game changers that you've seen in your career? One is CoStar. Mm -hmm. uh, one is cell phones and mm -hmm. computers. But the other is what's going on in, in the co-working, or as we like to call it, the flexible office space. Because I think of flexible office as an umbrella. And there's different things that, that, that comprise the spokes. One would be the traditional co-working, like a WeWork. But I remember in the, in the early years, you know, with what you have that are still out there with the Regis's and, and the, um, the car workplaces that are still out there, but they appeal to a different audience. And then there's things that are all along that spectrum. And what I find is that landlords are now starting to get into it. I don't think that WeWork is necessarily going away, but it's going to look different. And, and the time period of where you see WeWork taking down 100,000 feet, what feels like every other week, yeah. the top 13 deals that were done this year, five of them were WeWork, and they were, four or five of them were WeWork, and they were all over 100,000 square feet. Okay, we're not going to see that next year. Yeah. Okay, I think that's going to that's going to slow down and pull back. But what it's done is it's created great opportunities, but there's also a need to figure out how to sort of navigate those waters and aggregate that information. Savills has recognizes this and started a new division. It's in New York, it's in Atlanta, it's coming to, to DC soon, and I'm very excited. 
and it's called Work There. Mm -hmm. And Work There is looking to do that sort of thing. So if I have a client that wants to be in a flexible office space, I can team up with them. They are developing a database of all of these properties. For example, we helped a, a political campaign, a named one, that wanted to come to town, wanted to get in quickly, wanted a flexible space, found a spec suite. Mm -hmm. But the owner's like, uh, I don't want to do an 18-month lease with termination. So we did a deal with Notel. Mm -hmm. Notel signed a lease for five years, and, and you're going to start to see more and more of that. Or you have situations where the whole growth of the spec suites came up after 2008 in, in reaction to problems in the market and too much space. So they figured small tenants have trouble visualizing what it could look like and how long it's going to take to get it built out. So what they end up doing is a landlord will build out a spec suite. They're getting bigger and bigger, and now they're becoming kind of um, borrowing from the co-working spaces, more of a plug and play. Um, for example, Washreet does these. They call them Spaces Plus. They have a short form lease. It's about eight pages. They claim no negotiation, but I haven't done one with them. I would do some negotiation. Um, but you can get in. Ideally for them, no negotiation. Ideally for them. You could do you know, three, six months, a year, three years. And then if you outgrow that space, you can you know, flip to another space within that or even go to a more permanent long term. It's, uh, it's really interesting you mentioned the studio. Uh, you know, we our, our office is based in Chinatown, not, not a few blocks from here. Uh, my fiance is in a Tishman Spire building, and they have a, a studio there. And I was walking downtown, and there's more than people realize. Tishman Spire likes to operate very quietly, but there's not one studio in DC. There's there's a lot, and they're global, so they could ease. I mean, like you said, for a law firm client who may be based in New York, needs to come to DC. You know, they can put them in there for for a few weeks. It's a powerful, you know, powerful know, tool it, for them. It, it really is, and so. Um, I think that you're going to find that this whole concept is not going away. Uh, a great example is um, what Pinterest did. Pinterest built this great headquarters in San Francisco, but all of their locations elsewhere are all done in co-working spaces. And companies, I think, are going to, you're going to see more of that. I've done a lot of law firm work. Are you going to see law firms you know, rush to embrace that? Probably not, unless they, they want to have, you know, if they've got a particular project or, or a um, a trial in a particular city, or, or if they want to first test out the waters. But when you think about companies and how they grow, um, it's expensive to establish an office. It takes time to do it. So on behalf of a financial services client of mine that was looking to open an office in Reston or Tyson's for 20,000 feet, we concurrently looked at doing what we would call an enterprise lease, where they would take a whole floor. It's not going into co to co-work in like uh, WeWork, mm -hmm. where it's all branded by them, it's actually branded for my client. Right. It's a big cost. It, it, there's definitely um, a lot of costs associated with it, but the fact you know that speed to market, you don't have to sign a long-term lease, and while you're trying it out and testing things, we're using this swing space. Coming up, Wendy talks about the tech companies coming to Northern Virginia and using her position as one of the most prominent female brokers in D.C. to mentor others. What makes United Bank the community bank of the nation's capital? United Bank puts their customers and communities first. That means listening before developing solutions and aligning their approach with your goals. Combine that with extensive local knowledge and a focus on personal relationships, and it's no wonder Washingtonians choose United Bank. Bankwithunited.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. 
So you mentioned the tech companies coming to coming to this area to be around Amazon. And one of the things, you know, I mentioned DC itself has, is having a record high vacancy. Across the river in Northern Virginia, you know, it, it's a far different story and it seems to a certain degree that the balance of power has really shifted uh, where, you know, in, in say like a national landing um, or in, you know, the Raza Boston quarter specifically because they're, you know, the closest in from Amazon. It has been quite the tenants market for years and years and years, and now maybe it still is a tenants market, but it's, it's a much tighter market than it's been in a long time. And it seems like that's where all of the momentum and energy is in this area is, is focused right there. There's definitely a lot focused there, but I wouldn't say all. And I would say that um, while rates may not be as low, I think still you're seeing a lot of the concessions mm -hmm. that are still up there because there's, there's, just, there's just not as much demand. I right. think that's part of it. Um, there's no question that there's been an enormous amount of attention on the whole area around national landing and, and what that's going to do. And the, and the companies that are coming here, the jury's still out. You know, it's still a, a little ways out. Amazon's first tranche is going to be opening up, I believe, next year. Um, but a lot of the companies that are coming in, they're going to Reston. You looked at what's going on in Reston, you know, with Comstock at the Wheelie Avenue. I mean, it's hard keeping up with with Google's lease and with ICF and with Newstar and others that are going to Comstock five years after the Metro arrived. Yeah. They kind of came in late. And then Reston Town Center, you know, with their recent lease with Facebook. You've got, you know, Microsoft. You've got all of these people out there that want to be there. But they also have to look at, at where their um, employees are coming from. And so, you know, understanding that a lot of them live in, in uh, D.C. or Arlington, and that's where also a lot of the tech community is. Mm -hmm. So kind of how you, how you marry that. But I do think that we're going to see more tightening, even though the availability is higher mm -hmm. there. You know, you mentioned what's going on with National Landing, but there's still a few other, I think, very important and exciting stories in the region. One is the second half of the Silver Line opening, yeah. um, which I think is a major game changer. We have seen um, a lot more... Um, interest in Herndon and Reston and beyond um, from tenants, and I think that will only continue. I'm also excited about the Purple Line, which will open in 22. Um, I live in Bethesda and seeing knock on wood, knock open on wood. Yeah, transit projects. But, have but a way I mean, that, that. that's pretty exciting. What that's doing, I, I may never get to drive in downtown Bethesda again. Fortunately, I'm walkable because there's just so much going on. But to me, that that connection to New Carrollton with through Silver Spring and points in between. I think is just going to bring in more talent between those markets. You know, you have made it, um, you know, I, I believe a point of personal pride to be a mentor to a lot of uh, a lot of people, a lot of women, especially uh, in the D.C. area. Uh, I think you won the Crew Outstanding Impact Award in 2016. I want to say, when did that start for you? Um, and and I guess when did you realize that you know you could provide you know not just so much value to some, to colleagues but really a leadership role for the whole industry because I know not all of your mentors are Savills mm -hmm. workers you are a mentor to, to lots of people in the industry across lots of spectrums. Well, I wish I could say it was purposeful mm -hmm. and strategic, but I think it was more accidental. But I I was really fortunate to have a great mentor. And I, I think that I've just always been a connector, and so I think that's kind of what led me down that path. And I think I found, at least internally, when it started was there's not that many women in brokerage and that the ones that are don't typically stay in the industry. So that longevity, all of a sudden, like overnight, like I became one of the most senior ones. It's just kind of who lasted the longest. But when I had kids, and I'm really fortunate, I had a really supportive husband you know, along the way that enabled me to do all this, but when I had little kids, People would say, oh, how do you do it? 
you know, and, and people talk about work-life balance, I said to you earlier, there is none. You just kind of try to figure out how to navigate that. But um, that's when people started reaching out to me to see how I did it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I tried to be really purposeful and strategic that way. And I kind of joke that I have a side business as a leadership coach, um, unpaid, you know, maybe down the road, what, what, what is Wendy's 2.0? Yeah, know, exactly. it, it could be that. But I, I love being there and being a resource for people to talk about, you know, how you frame your personal narrative, um, things that are really important to me. I was raised, the world I see, not always good or bad, very black and white. Mm -hmm. um, there's no shades of gray, like your, your moral compass is the most important thing. Your word is really good. And I remember telling people early in my career that would seek me out that you get one shot at your reputation and you don't want to mess it up. And I, I think I take great pride in being known as somebody whose word is good, who is honorable, who's authentic, maybe a little hard charging, but at the end of the day, you know, is is hardworking and loyal. And so those are the things that frame me. And so when people ask, you know, how I've gotten to where I am, I'm happy to share that. And when somebody calls and says, Will you speak to my my cousin, will you speak? I'm like, I will speak to anybody. I, th I probably got a little more discreet with my time. Like, I will be driving home on the Beltway between this time. Can you call me then? Um, and and I've got kind of my my thoughts about the industry in general. And I, I just think it's a great industry, particularly for a woman. And we're we're at really good times. There's more opportunities than there ever been. You have to be willing to go after it and and get to that. And so from that standpoint. Um, that's kind of what motivates me on the, on the mentorship and the sponsorship. I got really active with crew and that was terrific. And I got on the board and I met some amazing women that I wouldn't have otherwise known. And it's, it's expanded my network and you know, through all of my involvement with networks, it spilled over to being really active in the community, which I love. And you know, I, somebody said, well, some people do their business development you know, on the golf course by meeting people. I, I've done mine being on, on non-profit boards. Yeah. And um, you know, being an example for people like that, you know, there's there's no there's no perfect solution, but um, always doing your homework. I had my grandmother went to Columbia Dental School in the 20s, and so she always said she had to be twice as prepared as the men. And I've always heard that in my head, and I've shared that with people. You know, I don't feel I have to know all the answers, nor should they, but they better figure out how to get the answer, manage the expectations, which is a huge part of our business. And, and let them know when it's going to be given to them. Because that's like the most important thing. And I harp on my kids about that all the time. Okay. Uh, the, so, I mean, your role as a mentor, as a sponsor, as, as a leader of you know, women in this industry, how has that changed in the last two years since you know, like kind of the Me Too movement happened? And you know, there was a lot of, uh, strife is probably two words, but there, uh, there was a lot of stress. And we did a lot of stories about it. Just, not just from men, I mean, there was a lot of stress of men that you hear from men saying, you know, I, I don't know how to act in the office. Like, has every, you know, has everything I've been doing been wrong? A lot of people would say, if, if just do what you've been supposed to be doing the whole time. Like, the rules has not changed, just the awareness has changed. Um, but I also heard a lot of um, concern from women who feared, who were worried about the backlash and worried about being excluded because of that fear. Um, I'm sure people were asking your advice in this situation. So how, I guess, how has your advice for that changed over the last couple of years? I think that it is that awareness that you talked about and putting yourself in a situation where you're taken professionally, where people, I liked, I would prefer someone look at me not based on my gender but as a person. And I think that the more that we can do that, understanding different ways of, of um, ability to communicate with people is really important. So those are some of the things that, that, that I talk about with people. Um, 
that's one of the reasons I've stayed at Saddles. I, I've always felt that there's never been an impediment to my success based on gender. Mm -hmm. And I can't say that about every company. And that you do learn pretty quickly which, which ones are going to be more supportive of women than others. And I think at this day and age, you can't ignore that. One of the things that people talk a lot about is making sure you bring in enough diversity. But that's only a small part of the equation. What are you doing as a company to make sure that they feel integrated? I don't think you can show up at a meeting, particularly a, uh, an opportunity to get hired on something. And I mean no disrespect, but you can't just throw up with three Caucasian guys. Mm -hmm. You need diversity. And it's not just, just checking the box that I'm a woman. We approach things differently. How we do our business is different. And so I think getting diverse opinions will make you ultimately, as a company, more successful. It's interesting because we did uh, a story about um, the racial diversity in brokerage. Uh, I, I mean, this is back in, I want to say 2016. Um, and even, I mean, it, that's probably still the place that, especially DC, has lagged behind and still still lags behind. But what they, uh, you know, what we heard from the people, you know, in the community who spoke out said, it's not going to happen until the clients demand, right? And to your point, like now, you can't show up into a meeting with three white guys and expect to, to so win. So it's a, the, it's a good job. time. Yeah. It's a good time for me as a woman, and it's a good time for other women mm -hmm. that that want to to, to get into that. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. And I think that you'll find more of that coming from the corporate world than necessarily law firms. Law firms care about it. And we've had a, a number of proposals of opportunities where they want to know upfront, what is your diversity policy? Mm -hmm. and, it, and like a lot of people, we're still working through it, but we are really tackling it head on to be thoughtful and purposeful and not just you know saying this is what we do, but we want to live by example right. and make sure that we have a team that's got diverse diverse backgrounds, diverse ages, because all of those are important components. It's such an interesting time. It's been a tense market for, for years and years. Moving forward in the next five years, you know, that's when leasing decisions are getting made. You know, you're not, for the most part, working on a lease for 2020. It's 2022 or 2023. What are the, the things that I think, that you think are most important uh, for your clients now that maybe a few years ago wasn't as high up on the priority list? Flexibility, uh, the ability to have a location that will help with, with recruitment and retention, and wellness. That's one thing we didn't talk about. We need even more time to do that, but yeah. I'm actually really passionate about the whole wellness movement. I'm the first broker that did a lease for an organization that achieved um, well certification. They, uh, American Side Interior Designers did double platinum lead and well. And what is wellness? It's really just about this. Like I look out at this cafe, it's light, light coming in different kinds of seating areas for people to come together that think about that whole hospitality bleed over into office lobbies. That's what matters to people. Well, that was all the, all the questions I have for you. Thank you so much for taking the time this morning. This has been Thank you for reaching bad. out to me. Oh, yeah, I really pleasure. enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Miriam Hall is the creator and executive producer of Let's Have a Drink. Its supervising producer is Mark Bonner. Travis Gonzalez is the audio editor.